Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee, all the best. Last week, we read Feminism is for Everybody by Bell Hooks. I love Bell Hooks for so many reasons. She is so thorough and meticulous in her thinking. She explores all sides of every issue. And also, she's always really grounded both in speaking truth and also in preserving and maintaining love toward human beings. And she has a a manner that's accessible to everyone, whether you have a PhD from an Ivy League or you had to drop out of school at a young age to earn money for your family. She's just a true humanist. And this week's author is in the same vein. It's Roxanne Gay, and her book, Bad Feminist, continues in that bell hooks tradition of being razor sharp in analysis, but relatable and really down to earth. If you've watched Roxanne Gay's TED Talk, it's called Confessions of a Bad Feminist. And you might think that Roxanne Gay is a professional comedian, especially at the beginning of the talk. She's so funny and so real. And she explains that the title of her essay collection, Bad Feminist, refers to the fact that she herself messes up all the time in her feminism and she falls short of her own ideals, just as we all do. So it's a huge relief to listeners and readers to hear how she talks about feminism and that she's not a perfect feminist. Interestingly, Roxane Gay is not primarily a comedian. She's a writer and a public intellectual who has a PhD, and she's a professor at Yale. But before we get into more of Roxane Gay and, and this text, Bad Feminist, I want to introduce my reading partner, Setare Greenwood. Hi, Setare. Hello. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited that you agreed to do this episode with me. <laughs> okay, so the next step is to learn a little bit about the author of this book, Roxane Gay. So, Satara, could you tell us about her? Sure. Okay, so Roxane Gay is an American writer, professor, editor, and social commentator. She was born in 1974 in Omaha, Nebraska, to parents who are both Haitian And she began her undergrad studies at Yale, but then dropped out in her junior year to pursue a relationship in a different state, then later completed her undergrad degree at Vermont College of Norwich University. So um, she then earned a master's degree with an emphasis in creative writing from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and then a PhD at Michigan Tech University in rhetoric and technical communication. So after completing her PhD in 2010, Gay began her academic teaching career at Eastern Illinois University, where she was assistant professor of English. While at Eastern Illinois, she was a contributing editor for Bluestem Magazine and also founded Tiny Hardcore Press. Next, she was an associate professor for creative writing in the Master of Fine Arts program at Purdue University. And in 2019, Gay started as a visiting professor at Yale. So she is a contributing opinion writer at the New York Times and the author of several short story collections, a novel, a memoir called Hunger, which came out in 2017, and Bad Feminist, which is an award-winning collection of essays. And Gay describes Bad Feminist in the following way. In each of these essays, I'm very much trying to show how feminism influences my life for better or worse. It just shows what it's like to move through the world as a woman. It's not even about feminism per se. It's about humanity and empathy. Awesome. And that's definitely that quote kind of encapsulate what's what the book felt like Mm -hmm. for me. It felt like each essay, they're quite short essays. It's like such a readable Mm -hmm. book, right? Because they just 
They're just short and really concise. And they're on like lots and lots of different topics. I was kind of surprised by the variety, but it did just feel like an extended empathy piece about mm-hmm. what it did feel like for her to be to be a woman and to be, you know, a daughter of Haitian immigrants. And mm-hmm. well, let's dig into the book. Like I said, there are many chapters on mm-hmm. many different topics, but we each narrowed it down and we chose three chapters each and we'll just take turns. So, Satare, why don't you start us off and then we'll just go back and forth sharing our chapters. Okay, cool. Um, okay, so the first chapter that I wanted to bring up was Peculiar Benefits, which talks about privilege and Roxane Gay's experience with reconciling the ways in which she's both privileged and marginalized as a Black second-generation immigrant woman from what she describes as a loving middle-slash-upper-middle-class family. Um, So it starts off with her talking about her experience visiting Haiti, where her parents are from, and seeing the juxtaposition of extreme poverty and, as she says, almost repulsive luxury. So at the beginning of the chapter, she states that, to see poverty so plainly and pervasively left a profound mark on me. And this, like, I don't know, it really stood out to me because I've been I've been thinking a lot lately about how people rationalize othering people. And I think that one aspect of like how we white people especially are taught to other people is by like avoiding conversations and avoiding confronting poverty in particular and discussions about what allows poverty to exist. And so like it's it's very like hush hush, like we don't talk about this and that makes it so that we are taught to think of it like poverty as shameful, which then feeds into this mindset that equates lack of success with like moral failings, which makes it even harder to acknowledge and address privilege because then you're stuck believing that people suffering are suffering purely because of their own actions and not because of systems set up that make it harder for them to succeed, like the Mm. prison industrial complex or the wage gap. And that can be really detrimental to movements that are trying to fix these issues. And then this chapter also talked about uh, what I've heard some people refer to as like pain Olympics, Mm, um, mm -hmm. which I think is really interesting. So Gay says that when we talk about privilege, some people start to play a very pointless and dangerous game where they try to mix and match various demographic characteristics to determine who wins at the game of privilege. Who would win in a privilege battle between a wealthy black woman and a wealthy white man? Who would win in a privilege battle between a queer white man and a queer Asian woman? Who would win in a privilege battle between a working class white man and a wealthy, differently abled Mexican woman? We could play this game all day and never find a winner. So I just, I really love how she puts this. I think that by making the discussion about who has more privilege and like ranking marginalized identities according to privilege, it's like just a distraction. We just ignore the very real issues of economic, social, and political systems that are built to oppress people. And that distraction allows more people to be hurt. So yeah, so just what, what do you what do you think about these sorts of things? Oh, wow. Well, I think that's so important that everything you just said was so fantastic. So important. I'm really glad you chose this chapter. This was one of the chapters that was like very heavily highlighted for me as well. Mm-hmm. I think her her insight is so helpful. When a couple of quotes that stood out to me from the chapter, she says, quote, nearly everyone, particularly in the developed world, has something someone else doesn't, something that someone else yearns for. And I was thinking about 
you know, people I know, relatives that I love who are white and male, but who have significant physical handicaps that make everyday life really, really hard. And a friend I knew, you know, a, a mom of one of my kids' friends at school who seemed to have everything. She's like super wealthy, super beautiful. And I found out later that she was like being abused at home, that her husband mm -hmm. was like hitting her <laughs> at home and like had had tons of affairs. And just, and so the, that point that Roxanne Gay makes about the different ways that we are privileged and then the different ways that we're not is just, again, it's so like, it just is, a, it almost makes you like breathe a sigh of relief of like, yes, that's what I'm seeing in my real life. Like, these are the people I know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she says, another quote, she says, quote, we tend to believe that accusations of privilege imply we have it easy, which we resent because life is hard for nearly everyone. Of course, we resent these accusations. And then she goes on to say, white men tend to say, it's not my fault I'm a white man, or I'm, insert other condition that discounts their privilege, right? Mm -hmm. And she continues, and she says, instead of simply, simply accepting that in this regard, yes, they benefit from certain privileges that others do not. To have privilege in one or more areas does not mean you are wholly privileged. Surrendering to the acceptance of privilege is difficult but it is really all that is expected. What I remind myself regularly is this. The acknowledgement of my privilege is not a denial of the ways I have been and am marginalized, the ways I have suffered. You don't necessarily have to do anything once you acknowledge your privilege. You don't have to apologize for it. But then she also says, Quote, you need to understand the consequences of your privilege and remain aware that people who are different from you move through and experience the world in ways you might never know anything about. End quote. So I loved that chapter. I'm really mm -hmm. glad you chose to highlight it because I do think everyone reading the book can benefit from that and learn from that. So... Okay, let's go on to the next chapter. One chapter that I chose to highlight is called How We All Lose. And she starts by saying that some people claim that, quote, if women's fortunes improve, it must mean men's fortunes will suffer, as if there's a finite amount of good fortune in the universe that cannot be shared equally between men and women, mm -hmm. end quote. I totally talk to both men and women who believe in this, this kind of zero-sum game way of looking at it. And I just think that this is a common fear whenever things change. And so Roxanne Gay, I mean, the, this chapter is called How We All Lose. And she's saying that seeing things as a zero-sum game is how we all lose. And in this chapter, she specifically criticizes Hannah Rosen's book, which is titled The End of Men and the Rise of Women which is a book that apparently claims that patriarchy is already dead and women already have everything that they could ever want. And Gay does actually a lot of literary criticism in this book. She'll like talk about, you know, real books that are out on the market right now and real songs and movies and stuff. And Gay responds to this book by saying that claiming that patriarchy is dead is ridiculous. She says it's, quote, so patently absurd that the hashtag rip patriarchy quickly flourished on Twitter in response, which mm -hmm. I thought was hilarious. Um, and she says, 
quote, Rosen is not wrong that life has improved in measurable ways for women, but she is wrong in suggesting that better is good enough. Better is not good enough. And it's a shame that anyone would be willing to settle for so little. Mm-hmm. And this is the, the argument that Gay is making. She says, quote, feminists are celebrating our victories and ex- acknowledging our privilege when we have it. We're simply refusing to settle. We're refusing to forget how much work there is yet to be done. We're refusing to relish the comforts we have at the expense of the women who are still seeking comfort, end quote. So this one, that was a huge point for me too in that chapter. Yeah, and then another chapter that I wanted to highlight, it's called Garish Glorious Spectacles, and it has to do with gender performance and what Roxane Gay calls green girls which is a term based off of a novel by the same name by Kate Zambrino. And essentially, Gay defines a green girl as, quote, a young woman who is learning how to perform her femininity, who is learning the power of it, the fragility. Her education is, at times, painful. The green girl is as vicious as she is vulnerable. And then she goes on to say that the novel, quote, Green Girl, reveals the intimate awareness many women have about the ways they are on display when they move in public about the ways they perform their roles as women. Okay, so I personally have currently, just in my life, uh, as a recent 18-year-old, have a lot of questions about like gender expression and performance and what it means to be a woman. So I found this chapter really intriguing, especially how green girls are described as knowing the rules to their existence, like all of these expectations of how they must be and how exhausted they seem following them. For instance, like one girl quote, wants to put her fist through a window, but she doesn't because she knows that's not what is expected of a green girl. And then later, like in regards to another literary green girl, Gay states, quote, what the people in her life label throughout the novel as insanity or selfishness reads quite clearly as weariness, a weariness of playing her part properly, of being on display, of being the ingenue and the good green girl. So I I don't know, that, that really struck me. Yeah. Okay, next chapter. Mm-hmm. Another chapter that I chose is called Some Jokes Are Funnier Than Others. So I'm going to start with just an anecdote from my life. My sister, Lindsay, who is a nurse, she's the one who did the episode on Roe versus Wade with me. A couple of years ago, she worked at a hospital where her coworkers would always use the word rape as slang. And she would like tell me this on the phone. I don't know if you've heard that, Setare, but I mm-hmm. never had before. And she never had before either. And they would they would say like, did you see like, you know, the supervisor or whatever, their boss would post the schedule and they would say like, oh my gosh, I got raped in oh, the schedule awful. this week. It's right? Like so awful. And she, I think she was, she <laughs> kind of felt like an alien, like, wait a second, am, am I hearing this right? And why am I the only one who thinks that this is terrible? So she she kind of at first tried to gently steer them away from using that word, just kind of like, mm-hmm. uh, or, or she kind of like change the direction of the conversation. And eventually right. they used it all the time. And eventually she she told them directly and just said like, please don't say that around me. And she shared the story of how our, our sister was raped during college. Mm-hmm. And and even they, as nurses, they occasionally, they will have to deliver a baby 
that was conceived from a sexual assault. And so she was just really like stunned that they would be using this language. And eventually, actually, she ended up quitting her job at that hospital and transferring to a different hospital because it was so upsetting to her. And she, we would just talk about like, how, how can people talk like that? And in this chapter, some jokes are funnier than others. Roxanne Gay talks about, because she's such a, like an incisive commentator on culture, mm-hmm. Gay takes this on as one of her topics and like how rape, the word rape and the concept of rape is used in popular culture. So she says that it's used constantly in humor by celebrities. And, and Gay talks about the comedian Daniel Tosh, who apparently uses rape humor as part of his shtick all the time. And she talks about one incident where he was doing a set at the Laugh Factory in L.A. And she says, quote, During that set, a young woman in the audience yelled, Actually, rape jokes are never funny. Tosh maturely responded, Wouldn't it be funny if that girl got raped by like five guys right now? Like right now? What if a bunch of guys just raped her? Then Gay says, What if, indeed, there's no better follow-up for a rape joke than a gang rape joke, because if rape is funny, gang rape is funnier. Rape humor is designed to remind women that they are still not quite equal, just as their bodies and reproductive freedom are open to legislation and public discourse, so are their other issues. When women respond negatively to misogynistic or rape humor, they are sensitive. Perhaps rape jokes are funny, but I cannot fathom how. Humor is subjective, but is it that subjective? I don't have it in me to find rape jokes funny or tolerate them in any way. It's too close a topic. Rape is many things. Humiliating, degrading, physically and emotionally painful. Exhausting, irritating, and sometimes it is even banal. It is rarely funny for most women. There are not enough years in this lifetime to create the kind of distance where I could laugh and say, that one time when I was gang raped was totally hilarious, a real laugh riot. That's the end of her quote. So if you watch Gay's TED Talk, she mentions a time when she was silenced, when a group of boys tried to take her voice away. And I watched that TED Talk of hers years ago, years before I read her book, and and I could tell just from her voice that she had experienced something horrific, but I didn't know what. And so when I read this book, she talks about what she was referring to in her TED Talk, and she talks about how at the age of 12, her boyfriend at the time lured her into a shack in the woods. They were out, took a bike ride together, and he brought her to this shack. And he had told a bunch of his friends that he would bring her there, and they ambushed her and gang raped her. And she talks a lot in the book, and then especially in her memoir, Hunger, she talks about the devastating impact that that had on her for the rest of her life. Mm -hmm. So in terms of using rape as a joke, she says, quote, something Somewhere along the line, we started misinterpreting the First Amendment and this idea of the freedom of speech the amendment grants us. We are free to speak as we choose without fear of prosecution or persecution, but we are not free to speak as we choose without consequence. Those who refrain from using humor to comment on the awful things in the world don't abstain because they are afraid. 
Maybe, just maybe, they have common sense. They have conscience. Sometimes saying what others are afraid or unwilling to say is just being an a-hole. We are all free to be a-holes, but we are not free to do so without consequence. What do you think of that, Satare? I mean, first off, the that that section in the in the book is like it's one of the hardest to get through, but I also think one that's very important to get through, like the the way that she talks about her experience is you you very much can tell the you you get a, a strong indication of the kind of impact that it would have on her life or on anyone's life. And I think I don't know. I mean people who who use rape jokes would do well to read it and mm-hmm. um would probably change their mind about what's okay for them to be saying. But also I just I think the distinction between free speech and consequence free speech is absolutely vital. And it's sickening that so many people, mostly men, but as you said, somehow also women, feel so comfortable and like cavalier making jokes about such a horrific trauma that so many people experience. And it especially bothers me how like goading so many of these jokes are. It's not like rape victims talking about their experience or like just talking about doing things without consent. It's people talking about how it's like not that bad or here's a thing you should do to take away a woman's autonomy and then classifying that as a joke. Like it's, I don't know, it's, it's heartbreakingly indicative of how little some people regard women as human beings who are like deserving of compassion and empathy or at the very least respect. Um, Mm. But it's also like really hard to regulate. In the chapter Blurred Lines Indeed, Gay later says, quote, I hate rape jokes, but I hate censorship more. I hate that I have to choose. And that, I don't know, that that struggle is very palpable, I think, especially in this country. Gay talks about how, quote, a culture that treats women as objects that gleefully supports entertainment that is more often demeaning to women than it is not that encourages the erosion of a woman's autonomy and personal space is the same culture that elects lawmakers who work tirelessly to enact restrictive abortion legislation? Or is it that state lawmakers who work tirelessly to enact restrictive abortion legislation encourage their constituents to treat women as objects? Perhaps this is trickle-down misogyny. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? And I, oh, I don't know. I think this is a brilliant and a vital point where like seemingly small things where people will be like, oh, you're making a big deal out of nothing if you call it out, like songs or jokes or poorly written characters, like they build up and they make disrespecting women a cultural norm. And then they also normalize like having control over women to such an extent that lawmakers with exactly that intent are electable despite or because of that intent. And then the restrictive laws that those lawmakers propose or then pass are supported or not noticed because dehumanizing women is then like a cultural norm. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I find that very worrying. Yeah, definitely. Okay, last chapter is The Trouble with Prince Charming. Mm -hmm. And so in this chapter, The Trouble with Prince Charming, she examines the dynamics that kids absorb from fairy tales and Disney movies. And then she takes on also Twilight, 
the mm-hmm. book series and then the book series Fifty Shades of Grey, which I've never read Twilight or Fifty Shades of Grey, but I mean, it's enough in the culture that I know what it is. And I thought it was really interesting, her commentary on it. Mm-hmm. So the first thing she talks about is a little bit about, you know, earlier fairy tales and Disney movies where the princess is passive and helpless, you know, like Snow White and um, Cinderella. And then she also talks about how in in the 1990s, Disney started representing kind of spunkier heroines. But Gay points out a really troubling dynamic. And, and she talks about the movie Beauty and the Beast, which was actually one of my favorite movies. And she says this, quote, In Beauty and the Beast, Belle is given away by her father to the beast himself and then must endure the attentions of a man who essentially views her as chattel. Only through sacrificing herself and loving a beast of a man can she finally learn that he is, in fact, a handsome prince. End quote. Mm -hmm. So obviously that's a really troubling dynamic, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's kind of a, a thread that goes through all three of these pieces through Beauty and the Beast, Twilight, and Fifty Shades of Grey. So in Twilight, she says, quote, Edward Cullen is theoretically attractive, but seems to have only one interest, loving Bella and controlling every decision she makes. We're supposed to believe this obsessive control and devotion are somehow appealing. We're supposed to believe he is Prince Charming, albeit flawed because he needs to drink blood to survive. Accepting Edward's controlling obsession and vampirism is the compromise required of Bella. End quote. Okay, and then the third one that I'm going to read is, she says, in Fifty Shades of Grey, quote, these books are really about Anna trying to change slash save Christian from his demons. She is the virginal good girl who can lead the dark bad boy to salvation. At one point during their courtship, Anna thinks, quote, This man, whom I once thought of as a romantic hero, a brave shining white knight, or the dark knight, as he said, he's not a hero. He's a man with serious, deep emotional flaws, and he's dragging me into the dark. Can I not guide him into the light? End quote. Okay, and I read that with that facetious and mocking tone of voice because she says she loves Fifty Shades of Grey because it is such bad writing. It like <laughs> makes her laugh and is entertaining because it's yeah. so bad, which I have heard from other people too. Like, oh, it's bad writing. But And so she's taking this on, even though it's not serious literature, it is a serious issue because so many people consume this stuff. So Right. So she so basically she's she's talking about in all three cases, right? She's talking about this girl, like a very young woman who's put in a situation where she is supposed to be the the bright shining light and the savior of this very controlling really actually abusive, emotionally abusive and sometimes even physically abusive man. But what Roxanne Gay, I think, is saying is like, that is not okay for our culture to keep kind of idolizing the girl or woman in this role of the abused mm-hmm. person who's who's trying to, you know, save the monster from his monstrosity. So what do you think, Satare? It's, I mean, it's partially, I think, an issue of representation where like the vast majority or like there's just so many different stories or 
paintings or like songs or whatever with that trope that like Mm -hmm. it's so pervasive um that that becomes the only representation and if it were a case of like several stories of that but also like diverse stories with diverse storylines where women have autonomy I don't think it would be such an issue but because it's existing kind of by itself it becomes more problematic than it would be otherwise Uh, the messaging that we get in childhood can be like really hard to unstick it's foundational to the brain architecture so the prevalence of this trope in fairy tales in particular primes us to be like less wary and opposed to it in the media that we mm. consume later in life and in actual life. And I think it's very hard to unlearn. Wow. Yeah, exactly. I, I totally agree. Mm. Well, that wraps up that chapter and wraps up our episode. And I am just so thrilled. Satari, you are so brilliant and so amazing. Thank you. Um, Thank you for having me. This has been really cool. Well, thank you again. I've so enjoyed our conversation. And I, yeah, I, I think you're incredible. And I wish you all the best in thank you um, as you're launching into adulthood, Satare. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Congratulations. Yeah. 